Chapter 10 The Blind Beggar of the Temple and His Wonderful Cure As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation, sent. Then he went and washed and came back seeing. John 9, 5-7 Our Saviour had been dealing with the Jews and the Pharisees, who had bitterly opposed and even taken up stones to cast at him. He felt much more at home when he could fix his eyes upon poor, needy beings, and bless them with healing and salvation. It is the lot of some of us to be in constant controversy with the carnal professors of the present day. It is a great relief to us to get away from them and their stones, find individual sinners, and preach the gospel to them in the name of God, which spiritually opens the eyes of the blind. At the gate of the temple sat a blind beggar who must have been a memorable character. He was very clever and possessed quick wit. From having been there so long, he must have been well known to all who regularly frequented the temple and even to those who came from far away to the great yearly gatherings. This man could not see Jesus, but Jesus could see him. We read in the opening of the chapter, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. John 9, 1. There were many other blind men in Israel, but Jesus saw this man with a special eye. I can picture the Saviour standing still and looking at him, taking stock of him, listening to his quaint speeches, noting what kind of man he was, and exhibiting special interest in him. This morning there is someone in the tabernacle who cannot see Jesus because he has no spiritual eyes. But I am convinced that my Master is looking at him, searching him from head to foot, and reading him with his discerning eyes. He is considering what he will make of him because he has the great and gracious intent that he will take this sinner, who is spiritually like the blind beggar, enlighten him and allow him to behold his glory. I suppose that the blind beggar of the temple hardly valued sight, because he had been blind from his birth. Those who have seen must greatly miss the light of day, but those who have never possessed sight at all can hardly understand what that sense must be like. Therefore, it can't be as much of a loss to them. The person I'm talking about at this time has no idea of the joy of true religion, because he has no sense of spiritual life and light. He has never seen. So he doesn't know his own misery in being blind. He has been blind from his birth, and in all probability he is content to be so, because he doesn't know the delight which waits for a heaven illumined eye. To him, spiritual things are an unknown region of which he has no understanding. He is with us here, but he isn't looking for salvation or even desiring it. But Jesus knows the value of sight. He knows the glories which heavenly light would bring home to the mind, and he will not be limited in his action by human ignorance, but will dispense his gracious blessings according to his own mind, which is as large as the boundless sea. This beggar did not pray for sight. At least it isn't recorded that he did. He was a beggar, it was his trade to beg, but among all his petitions he did not ask for sight. Yet Jesus gave him sight. Remember that glorious declaration of free grace, I was found of those that did not seek me, 
Isaiah 65, 1. Isn't it a wonderful thing that Jesus often comes to those who did not seek Him? He comes all of a sudden to them in the sovereignty of His infinite compassion, and before they have begun to pray for the blessing, He has given it to them. His free love precedes their desires for it. When they become fully aware of the value of salvation, they find themselves already in possession of it, and so their first prayers are mingled with praises. I am persuaded that there are some here who are like the man born blind. They don't know what they want. They are not yet aware of the value of the blessing, and because of these reasons they have not sought it, but they are going to receive it today. The blind beggar had this one circumstance in his favor. He was in the path where Jesus was likely to go, because he was at the temple gate. My friend, you too are on hopeful ground, because you are sitting in the place where my Lord has often been, and where he is very likely to come again. We have prayed him into this house hundreds of times, and we have done so today. He has been glorified in this tabernacle, and his friends have welcomed him so warmly that he delights to come here. I pray that as Jesus passes by, he stops and looks upon you with his eyes of infinite mercy. What was our Lord doing? To tell the truth, he was under a divine compulsion. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me. He was looking out for material to work upon, in which the works of God would be made manifest. Here was the very man prepared for Christ as clay is prepared for the modeler. Let him receive his sight, and all Jerusalem would see the work of the Lord. Even those who dwelled in far-off lands would hear of it. This blind beggar was the very person the Saviour was looking for. My master walks up and down these aisles, and he finds many who can see, or who think they can. These he passes by, because those that are whole need not a physician. Matthew 9:12. But as he continues to walk, he comes at last to a poor, dark creature, hopelessly, helplessly blind from his birth, and he stops and says, This is the man. There is room for a miracle here. It's true, O Lord. There is space for healing power to exhibit itself. In that hard heart and stubborn will, there is room for renewing grace. The desperate needs of the sinner are the opportunities for the Saviour. And you, poor, guilty, lost, and ruined sinner, you are the raw material for Christ's grace to work upon. You are the very man his forgiving love is looking for. You who cannot see spiritual things, you who barely know what heavenly sight can mean, and hardly have a desire to know, you are the very person in whom there is elbow room for omnipotent grace, space and scope for the matchless skill of our Saviour's love. My Lord stops and looks at you. This will do, he says. This is the kind of man I want. I can work out my mission and life purpose here. I am the light of the world, and I will deal with this darkness, removing it at once. O Lord Jesus, you are in the highest heaven now, and yet you hear your servants' prayers from this poor earth. Come into this tabernacle and repeat the wonders of your love. We don't ask you to open the natural eyes of the blind, but we ask you to give spiritual sight to the inwardly blind, understanding to those in error, and salvation to the lost. Prove yourself to be the Son of the Highest by saying, Let there be light. 
These poor blind ones don't pray to you, but we ask for grace for them, and surely your own heart prompts you to answer us. Come without delay and bless them, to the praise of the glory of your grace. This case of the blind beggar is eminently instructive. Therefore, let us examine it in the hope that while we are considering this model case, we may see it repeated in spiritual form in our midst. Holy Spirit, bless our discourse to that end. The great healer was made obvious. First, in this man's healing, and in the salvation of every chosen soul, we will see that the great healer was made obvious. If anyone among us is ever to be saved, the Saviour will be made great by it. If we are pardoned, we will not be honoured by the forgiveness, but the royal hand which signed and sealed the pardon will be greatly magnified. If our eyes are opened, we will not be made famous for sight, but he who opened our eyes will be made renowned by the cure. It was like that in this case, and rightly so. In this man's mind, as soon as he received sight, a man named Jesus came to the forefront. To him, Jesus was the most important person in existence. All he knew of him at first was his name. With only that limited information, Jesus filled the whole horizon of his vision. He was more to him than those learned Pharisees or all his neighbors put together. Jesus was exceedingly great, because he had opened his eyes. By fixing his mind upon that figure, he saw more in it, and he declared, He is a prophet. He boldly said this when he was running great risks by doing so. To their faces he told the carping Pharisees, He is a prophet. A little further on he came to this, that he believed him to be the Son of God and worshipped him. Now, my dear friend, if you are saved by Jesus, your star must set, but the star of Jesus must rise and increase in brilliance until it becomes no longer a star but a sun making your day and flooding your whole soul with light. If we are saved, Christ Jesus must and will have the glory of it. No one on earth or in heaven can rival Jesus in the honor of souls brought from darkness to light. He is everything to them. Do you dislike this? Do you want a share of the spoils, a fragment of the glory? Go your way and be blind, because your condition can never change as long as you refuse to honor the Savior. He who opens a man's eyes deserves his grateful praises forever. After this man received sight, his testimony was all about Jesus. It was Jesus who spat, it was Jesus who made the clay, and it was Jesus who anointed his eyes. It will be the same way in your mind with the gospel of your salvation. It will be only Jesus. It is Jesus who became the guarantee of the covenant, and Jesus who became the atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the High Priest, the Mediator, and the Redeemer. We know Jesus as Alpha, and Jesus as Omega. He is the first and last. In your salvation there will be no mistake about it, and no mixture in it. You will have nothing to say about man, or man's worth, or man's will. You will put all your crowns on the head which was once wounded with the thorns. Jesus did it, did it all, and He must be praised. The authority of Jesus issued the saving command, Go wash. These were not the words of Peter, or James, or John, but the words of Jesus. 
Therefore, the man obeyed them. The gospel message, Believe and Live, is not obeyed until you perceive that it is proclaimed by the supreme authority of King Jesus the Savior. He that asks you to believe is that same Lord who can and will give you healing through your obedience to His command. Trust Him because He commands you. The assurance of the gospel is the authority of Christ. Obey His command and you have obtained His salvation. The success of the gospel command is produced by Him that spoke it. It accomplishes its work because it comes from His mouth. The word of the King is His power, and the gospel is the word of the great King. Ecclesiastes 8.4 Therefore those who listen to it find it to be the power of God unto salvation. This man, when he had received sight, attributed it most distinctly and undividedly to Jesus. He said, He has opened my eyes. John 9.30 Whenever he delivered his testimony, whether to his neighbors or to the Pharisees, there was no uncertainty about it. He had been enlightened by Jesus and by Jesus alone. To him he gave all the glory, and he was right to do so. So listen to what I am saying. You who desire to find light today, give me your attention now. Attempt to realize that Jesus Christ is a living and acting person. He is not dead. He rose long ago. Being alive and exalted to the highest heavens, He is clothed with infinite power and majesty and is mighty to save. In a spiritual way, He is still among us and working according to His gracious nature. To us, He is not an absent Christ, nor a sleeping Christ. He is still doing what He did when He was on earth, only He now works in the spiritual as He once worked in the physical world. He is now present to save, present to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, and present to bless you. Understand that He is looking upon you at this moment. Standing in front of you, His shadow is now falling upon you. He is considering your case. Are you praying? He is hearing. Has it not even progressed as far as a prayer? Is it only a desire? He is reading that desire. As it passes like a shadow across the camera of your soul, He is thinking upon you. At this moment, He is able to say the word that will remove the film from your eyes and let in the everlasting light of grace. Do you believe this? If so, then cry to Him, Lord, grant me to receive my sight. He will hear you. Perhaps while I am speaking, He will send the light. To your intense delight, you will find yourself in a new world. Escaping from darkness, you will enter into His marvelous light. You must realize that the great change you need in order to obtain salvation is beyond all mortal power. You cannot accomplish it yourself, nor can all the help of men and angels joined together accomplish it for you. It is even beyond your own understanding. As a carnal man, you don't know what spiritual things are, and you cannot grasp the idea of them. A dead man cannot know what life is. If he could live again, he would have some knowledge of life derived from his former life. But as for you, it would all be new and strange, because you have never lived unto God. You cannot comprehend what heavenly sight is, because you were born blind. May the Lord do a new thing in you at this moment, and bring you into a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells.
You must have this miracle worked upon you. If the blind man had remained blind, he might have continued as a tolerably happy beggar. He seems to have had very considerable mental resources, and he might have made his way in the world as well as others of the begging community. But you cannot be happy or safe unless the Lord Jesus opens your eyes. Nothing remains for you except the blackness of darkness forever, unless light from heaven visits you. You must have Christ or die. Here is the blessedness of it. Right now he is still in the midst of us and able to save completely. He is willing to repeat the miracles of his mercy to those who will trust in him to do so. I think I can almost hear the prayer struggling in your bosom. Silent and unclothed in words, it sits on your lips. Let it speak. Say, Lord, open my eyes this day. He will do it. Blessed be his name. He intentionally came to open the eyes of the blind. The special means were made observable. We've touched on the great healer as he stands central to the miracle. Now I will direct your thoughts to the special means observable in the miracle. Jesus could have healed this man without means, or he could have healed him by other means, but he chose to work the cure in a manner which to all ages will remain a grand sermon, an instructive parable of grace. He spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. This is a picture of the gospel. This picture meets with many modern criticisms. In the first place, the mode of cure seems very eccentric. He spat and made clay with the spittle and the dust. Very unique, very odd. In the same way, the gospel is odd and unique in the judgment of the worldly minded. They say, It seems so strange that we are to be saved by believing. Men think it so odd that fifty other ways are immediately invented. Though not one of the new methods is worth describing, yet everybody seems to think that the old-fashioned way of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ might have been greatly improved upon. The way of justification by faith is particularly prone to criticism, and it's about the last way this wise world would have selected. Yet, eccentric as it may seem for Christ to heal with spittle and dust, it was the best and wisest way for his purpose. Suppose, instead, he had put his hand into his pocket and taken out a gold or ivory box, and out of this box he took a little crystal bottle. Suppose he had taken out the stopper, poured a drop on each of those blind eyes, and they had been opened. What would have been the result? Everybody would have said, What a wonderful medicine! I wonder what it was! How was it made? Who wrote the prescription? Perhaps he found the charm in the writings of Solomon, and he learned to distill the matchless drops. So the attention would have been fixed on the means used, and the cure would have been credited to the medicine rather than to God. Our Saviour used no such rare oils or choice spirits. He simply spat and made clay of the spittle because he knew that nobody would say, The spittle did it, or it was the clay that did it. No, our Lord may seem to be eccentric in his choice of means, but he is extremely wise. The gospel of our Lord Jesus, and there is only one, is the wisdom of God, however strange it may seem in the judgment of the worldly. Some may think it strange, but it is the sum of all wisdom. Those who try it 
find it to be so. It would be impossible to improve upon it. Its adaptation to man's case is marvelous. Its suitability to its design is matchless. It blesses man while it gives all glory to God. No one makes the gospel a rival to Christ. In every case, by the gospel, the power which blesses men is demonstrated as the power of God. The means may also appear offensive to some. Oh, I think I can picture some of the fine gentry, how they turn up their noses as they read, He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. It turns the stomachs of those delicate ones. It's the same way with the gospel. The agags who live delicately don't like it. How the men of culture sneer at the gospel for which our fathers died. Hear how they criticize the ever-blessed word of our salvation. They say that it's only fit for old women, idiots, and such fossils of the past ages as the preacher who is now addressing you. We are all fools except these men of progress, and our gospel is disgusting to them. Yes, but stop a minute, and disgust may come to an end. In this miracle the means used was spittle. But from whose mouth? It was the mouth of Jesus, which is most sweet. No fragrant perfume made of the rarest spices can ever equal the spittle of his divine mouth. Clay! What if it's just clay? Clay made by the spittle of the mouth of the Son of God is more precious than a marvelous crystal or the rarest powders of the merchant. Ezekiel 1.22. It's the same with my master's gospel. It is offensive to those who are proud of themselves. It is offensive to carnal thinking and to the idiotic self-complacency of those who consider themselves to be wise but have become otherwise. But to you who believe, he is precious. How precious? No tongue can tell. What if we trace the globe around and search from Britain to Japan? There shall be no religion found, so just to God, so safe for man. The gospel is still a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but to us who are saved it is that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.24 Still others object that the Lord healed this man in such a commonplace way. To spit and make clay of the spittle, why, anybody could do that. Why not use an impressive ceremony? Why not practice an eclectic method? If it had been one of the doctors of the age, he would have made a great performance of it. His prescription would have been a treat for learned men. Did you ever read Culpepper's Complete Herbal? I hope you have never taken any of the medicine which that learned herbalist prescribes. In one mess you will find a dozen articles each one of them monstrous. In many prescriptions you will find twenty or more herbs most curiously combined. Such were the prescriptions of even earlier times. If they did no good, at least they confused the patient. Today, what is the new gospel that is proposed to us? It is the gospel of culture. Culture! This, of course, is the monopoly of our superiors. It is only to be enjoyed by very refined people who have been to college and who carry inside of themselves a whole university, library, and all. The gospel, which is made to be plain enough for poor beggars, is for that reason despised. 
that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners is too commonplace a teaching. That He bore our sins in His own body on the tree is rejected as an outrageous dogma, unfit for this intelligent age. Oh, yes, we know the men and their stares of contempt. Yet, as commonplace as our Lord's medicine was, it was unique. All the philosophers of Greece and all the wise and rich men of Rome could not have created another drop of this healing application. Only the Christ possessed that matchless spittle. Only His fingers could make that special clay. Even so, if the gospel seems commonplace, we must remember that there's not another like it. Tell me, you who are wise, can you find anything that compares with it? Christ in the sinner's place became sin for us, so we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Can you match this? Jesus redeeming His people from the slavery of sin. You may call it a mercantile atonement if you want, and grow red in the face in your rage at the substitutionary sacrifice, but you cannot equal it. The more you ridicule the gospel, the more we will cling to it, and the more we will love it because the very spittle of Christ's mouth is dearer to us than the deepest thoughts of your profoundest philosophers. I think I hear another objector say that the remedy was quite inadequate. Clay made out of spittle would be positively inert and could exercise no healing power upon a blind eye. The clay alone has no healing properties, but when Jesus uses it, it will accomplish His purpose. The man, after he had washed the clay into the pool, came up seeing. The gospel may appear as if it couldn't possibly renew the heart and save from evil. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ seems an unlikely means of producing holiness. Men ask, what can evangelical preaching do to remove sin? We point to those who were once dead in sin who are made alive by faith. In this way, we prove the power of the gospel by facts. Oh, they say, can faith transform the character? Can belief conquer the will? Can trust transport the mind to a high and elevated life? It can, and does do so. And even though in theory it appears inadequate, as a matter of fact, it has made men into new creatures and has turned sinners into saints. Another wise gentleman judges that clay upon the eyes could even be harmful. To stick clay over a man's eyes would not make him see, it would add another impediment to the light. I have even heard it said that to preach salvation by faith goes against good morals and may even encourage men in evil. They are blind bats. Can't they see that reality is the very reverse? How often harlots are made chaste, thieves are made honest, and drunkards are made sober by the gospel. By this very gospel of faith, which they say is against good morals, the best of morals are produced, and in the next breath they denounce believers as Puritans, too precise and religious. Nothing creates as many good works as that gospel which tells us that salvation is not of works, but by the grace of God. Another objector declares that our Lord's way of cure was opposed to the law. Here is this man named Jesus actually making clay on the Sabbath. Wasn't this a shocking infringement of the law? It is insinuated that our gospel of faith in Jesus makes men think lightly of the law. We preach against the idea of merit, 
and we say that good works cannot save men. Therefore, we are charged with lowering the dignity of the law. This is not true. Our gospel establishes the law and promotes true obedience. When the Saviour said, Go wash, the blind man went and washed. The Lord Jesus had taught him the best kind of obedience, the obedience of faith. Even though it seems that we are in conflict with the law, when we declare that by the works of the law shall no living flesh be justified, we also establish the law, because faith brings with it the principle and source of obedience. To trust God is the very essence of obedience. He who believes in Jesus has taken the first step in the great lesson of obeying God in all things. To see how Jesus suffered the law penalty, and how he honored the law for us, is to see that which makes the law most glorious in our thinking. So, do not try to find fault with the gospel. We sometimes tell servants that it's never wise to quarrel with their bread and butter. I would emphatically say to every anxious person, do not quarrel with the gospel of salvation. If you are in a right state of mind concerning your condition, I'm sure you won't. When I found the Lord, I was driven into such a corner. Whatever salvation might have been, I would have accepted it on God's terms without a question. If you are the man that I'm looking for, if you want to receive spiritual sight, you will make no conditions with Jesus. You won't ask for a perfumed ointment for your eyes, but you will gladly accept an anointing with clay from your Savior's hands. Whatever the Lord prescribes as the way of salvation, you will joyfully accept. In that cheerful acceptance lies a great part of the salvation itself, because your will is now one with God's. Let us pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal the gospel to our hearts and make us love it, receive it, and prove its power. The Plain Command Our Lord said to his patient, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. The man could not see, but he could hear. Salvation comes to us not by sight or ceremonies, but by hearing the word of God. The ears are the best friends a sinner has remaining with him. It is by way of ear-gate that the Prince Emmanuel comes riding into Mansoul in triumph. Hear, and your soul shall live. The command was specific. Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. The gospel is also specific. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It is not do this or that work, but believe. It is not believe in a priest or in any human being, but in Jesus. If this man had said, I will wash in Jordan, because it was there that Naaman lost his leprosy, his washing would have been useless. It was a little insignificant affair, that pool of Siloam, whose waters flowed softly. Why must he go there? He didn't ask for reasons, but he obeyed at once, and in obeying he found the blessing. My hearer, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. There are not twenty things to be done, but only this one. The very longest form of the gospel goes like this. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. The faith is to be openly confessed by obedience to the Lord's prescribed baptism. But the first matter is the faith. He that believeth on him has everlasting life. This is very specific. You can make no mistake 
in the matter. It was also intensely simple. Go wash in the pool. Go to the pool and wash the clay into it. Any boy can wash his eyes. The task was simplicity itself. So is the gospel as plain as a pikestaff. You don't have to perform twenty genuflections or posturings, each one peculiar. Nor do you have to go to school to learn a dozen languages, each one more difficult than the other. No, the saving deed is one and simple. Believe and live. Trust Christ, rely upon Him, and rest in Him. Accept His work upon the cross as the payment for your sin, His righteousness as your acceptance before God, and His person as the delight of your soul. But the command was also clearly personal. Go wash. He couldn't send a neighbor or a friend. His parents couldn't go for him. It would have been useless for him to have said, I will pray about it. No, he must go and himself wash in the pool. So too, the sinner must himself believe in Jesus. Only your own faith will achieve the goal. Your own eyes want opening, so you must go yourself and wash in the pool in obedience to Jesus. You must personally believe unto eternal life. Some of you are under the impression that you may sit still and hope that God will save you. I have no authority to encourage you in such a rebellious inactivity. Jesus commands you to go and wash, and how dare you sit still! When the Father comes to receive his prodigal child, he finds him on the road. He was still a great way off when his father saw him, but his face was turned in the right direction, and he was making his way to the father's house. He says to you, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and the Christ shall shine upon thee. Ephesians 5 14. Up with you, man! The pool of Siloam will not come to you. You must go to it. The waters won't leap out of their bed and wash your eyes. You must stoop to them and wash in the pool until the clay is gone and you see. It is a very personal direction. Make sure that you treat it as such. It was a direction which involved obedience to Christ. Why must I go there and wash there? Because he tells you. If you want Jesus to save you, you must do as he commands you. You must take Jesus to be your Lord if you take him to be your Savior. Dear heart, yield to Jesus Christ today. A servant has never had such a master. Your desire will be to bow down and kiss those dear feet which were nailed to the cross for you. Yield yourselves to the rule of Jesus at once. The act of faith is even more acceptable because it is the heart's obedience to Jesus. Submit to him by faith, I beg you. The command was for the time present. Jesus did not say, Go wash in the pool tomorrow or in a month's time. If the beggar had been blind inwardly as well as outwardly, he might have said, My blindness brings me in money. I'll make a little more as a blind beggar, and then I'll have my eyes opened. He valued sight too much to delay. Had he delayed, he would have remained blind until doomsday. If any of you think it would be inconvenient to be converted right now, I have no hope for you. I can preach no salvation to you but a present one. He who refuses to be saved today is not likely to be saved at all. Go, blind beggar, go and be blind forever unless you agree to sight today. It may be now or never with you. Today is the day of salvation, 
and tomorrow is nothing but the devil's net. You will be hopelessly lost if you continue to delay. The command in the blind man's case was very noteworthy. Go, wash, and so is the spiritual command, which is its parallel. Believe in the Lord Jesus. I beg you to hear the word which commands you to trust the Saviour. He cries, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45.22 Oh, may God help you to do so this very instant! Will you not? Blessed Spirit, lead them to do so, for Jesus' sake. The Delightful Result Certified Finally, I invite you to see the delightful result certified. I can picture this man, attended by his neighbors, going to Siloam. They had seen Jesus place the clay upon the man's eyes, and had heard him say, Go to Siloam. They volunteer to go and act as guides to the blind. Curiosity inspires them. He reaches the pool and descends the steps. He is close to the water. He stoops his head and washes his eyes. What will come of it? The clay is gone, but what else has happened? Suddenly the man lifts up his face and cries, I can see! I can see! What a shout must have come from them all! What a wonder! What a marvel! Hosanna! Blessed be God! The man cries, It's true! I washed and I can see! This man could see at once. He washed and his blindness was gone. Eternal life is received in a moment. It doesn't take the tick of a clock to justify a sinner. The moment you believe, you have passed from death to life. Quick as a flash of lightning, the change takes place, and eternal life enters and casts out death. Oh, I pray that the Lord would work salvation now. This man could see immediately. We read of another blind man in Scripture who first saw men as trees walking, and only after a time saw every man clearly. Mark 8.24. But this man saw clearly at once. I pray that you who hear me would believe and live at once. This man knew that he could see. He had no question about it, because he said, One thing I know, that having been blind, now I see. John 9.25. There's the possibility that some of you have been decent people all your lives, and yet you don't know whether you're saved or not. This is poor religion, cold comfort. Saved and not know it? It must be as lean a salvation as that man's breakfast when he didn't know whether he had eaten it or not. The salvation which comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is conscious salvation. Your eyes will be so opened that you'll no longer question whether you can see. He could see, and he knew that he could see. Oh, if only you would believe in Jesus and know that you have believed and are saved. I pray that you would get into a new world and enter into a new state of things altogether. May that which was totally unknown to you before be made known this very hour by Almighty Grace and other people noticed that he could see. It was like they couldn't quite grasp it. Some said, This is he. Others would only say, He is like him. A man with opened eyes is very different from the same man when he is blind. If we were to take someone we know who has no eyes, and suddenly eyes were placed in his appearance, 
we would probably find his expression so altered that we would hardly think him to be the same person. Therefore, the cautious neighbors only said, He is like him. Yet they were all sure he could see. None of the Pharisees said to him, Are you sure you can see? Those twinkling eyes of his, so full of fun, wit, and sarcasm, were obvious proof that he could see. In the same way, your friends at home will know that you are converted if it is really true. They will hardly need telling, because they will find it out. The very way you eat your dinner will show it. It will. You eat it with gratitude, and ask for a blessing on it. The way you will go to bed will show it. I remember a poor man who was converted. He was dreadfully afraid of his wife, not the only man in the world that lives in that fear. So he was fearful that she would ridicule him if he knelt to pray. He crept upstairs in his stockings so she wouldn't hear him, and so he could have a few minutes of prayer before she knew he was there. His scheme broke down. His wife soon found him out. Genuine conversion is no easier to hide than a candle in a dark room. You cannot hide a cough. If a man has a cough, he must cough, and if a man has grace in his heart, he will show grace in his life. Why should we want to hide it? Oh, may the Lord give you such an eye-opening this day that friends and relatives will know that your eyes have been opened. The restored one never lost his sight again. Christ's cures are not temporary. I have heard of many cases lately of people who have been extremely happy because they imagined that they were perfectly restored. The cure lasted a week, and then they were as bad as ever. Imagination can do great things for a season, but Christ's cures last forever. Any eye that Christ opened never went blind again. We believe in being born again, but not in becoming unborn. I know that whatever the Lord does will be forever. My friends, I have nothing to preach but eternal salvation. Come to Christ, and He will work an effective cure in you. Trust Him completely, because in Him there is everlasting life. This man, when he received sight, was willing to lose everything as a consequence. The Jews cast him out of the synagogue, but when Jesus found him, the man was not upset about the Jews. I can picture his face when Jesus found him, how happy he was as he worshipped his benefactor. Poor soul, poor soul, you've been cast out of the synagogue. Oh, he says, don't pity me. They may cast me out of fifty synagogues now that Christ has found me. What do I care about synagogues now that I've found the Messiah? When I was in the synagogue, I was a blind man. Now I'm out of the synagogue, but I have my sight. When you become a Christian, the world will hate you and criticize you. But what about it? Some will have no more to do with you. This may be the best favor they can do you. We had a lady of title in our membership once, and a very gracious sister she was. I had a little apprehension about her at first, that the other great ones would draw her away from the truth. Soon after her baptism she remarked that a certain noble family had given her the cold shoulder, and others who were very close friends had stopped visiting. She took it as a matter of course, and only remarked that it made her own course easier, because she no longer had the pain of hearing their ungodly conversation, or even the responsibility of severing the relationship. The world has done its best for the child of God when it casts him out. His excommunications are better than his communications. 
The outside of the world's house is the safest side of it for us. That we love the brethren and that the world hates us are two good evidences of grace for which a man may be grateful. Let us join Christ outside the camp, bearing his reproach. What a wonderful thing the Lord Jesus had done for this man, and what a wonderful thing he is prepared to do for all who trust him. It was a work of creation. The man's eyes were useless, and Jesus created sight in them. To heal a limb is one thing, but to create an eye, or to enable that which was only the mere form of an eye to become an organ of perception, is a greater thing by far. To save a soul is a work of creation. We are created anew in Christ Jesus. It was also a work of resurrection. Those eyes had been dead, and the Lord Jesus raised them from the dead. The Lord God Almighty can work creation right now, and He can produce resurrection today. And why shouldn't He? Today we commemorate both of these divine works. This first day of the week was the beginning of the creation of God. It is also the day in which our Lord rose from the dead, as the firstfruits of those who slept. This Lord's day commemorates the beginning of creation and of resurrection. Let us pray for the Almighty Lord to display among us the works of God this day. O Lord, regenerate, illuminate, pardon, and save those who are here, and glorify your Son. Amen and Amen.